Welcome. We are so thankful that you chose to spend Easter Sunday with us. If you are a guest of ours, we want you to know you are our honored guest. A lot of places you could be this morning. Uh, we're honored that you chose to worship God with us today here at Bay Area. You know, this is the one week of the entire year, the one Sunday, where everybody knows exactly what the sermon is going to be about, right? <laughs> Wherever you go to church this morning, you, you got a pretty good chance of guessing what the sermon is going to be about on Easter Sunday. I'm part of a group of preachers that get together every now and then on Zoom, and some of those preachers were sort of um, stressed out about their Easter message. They were saying, you know, I'm, I'm really struggling with, with what I'm going to say on Easter. And I was thinking, are you kidding me? <laughs> it's the resurrection. It's our story. I mean, this is our wheelhouse. If you're not sure how you're going to tell the resurrection story, you know, you, you got a problem. This is... This is why we do what we do. This is why we believe what we believe. See, I've I've titled my lesson this morning, Why We Believe, because the resurrection explains why it is we believe. The resurrection answers maybe the greatest question ever asked. Who is Jesus? It was the resurrection that caused those followers in the first century to believe. It wasn't necessarily the teaching. In fact, ultimately, it wasn't the miracles. It was the resurrection that caused them to believe that Jesus is who he said he was, the Messiah, the Son of God. We believe in the resurrection. If you're a guest of ours today, let's put that out there right and start with. We believe in the resurrection. We believe because a guy named Matthew documented the things that Jesus said and did. And Matthew talks about the resurrection of Jesus. We believe because a Greek guy named Mark, who spent a lot of time with Peter, believed what Peter said, what Peter saw. And he documented that Jesus rose from the dead. We believe because a Greek guy, a doctor, another Greek guy, a doctor named Luke, who traveled extensively with Paul, talked to enough people who believed that Jesus was risen from the dead. In fact, he writes the Gospel of Luke and When he addresses that letter, that gospel, to the guy that he's writing to, he says this, O excellent Theophilus, I have sat down, like many have, to give an orderly account of the events that took place among us. And we believe because Peter, in two of his books, talks about the resurrection of Jesus. And we believe in the resurrection because Jesus' own brother, a guy by the name of James, came to the conclusion that his brother was his Lord. And he didn't come to that conclusion while Jesus was here on, doing his earthly ministry. He came to that conclusion after the resurrection. And James becomes a leader in the church, especially there in Jerusalem. And we believe because a guy named Paul who walks into the pages of history as someone who is persecuting the church, who's trying to stop people who believe in Jesus, Paul comes to the conclusion that Jesus is exactly who he said he was. And Paul believed and wrote about the fact that Jesus was resurrected from the grave. And all of these men, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, documented what they saw, documented what they heard. They wrote it down. And they put those writings together. Collected in a book that, that we call the Bible. And the story of Jesus is in the Bible. 
but the truth is the story of Jesus wouldn't really be worth telling if it weren't for the resurrection. I mean, take the resurrection out of the story of Jesus, and he's just another Jewish rabbi that went off the rails. He's just another wannabe Messiah who Rome put to death. I mean, they were a dime a dozen. Then you add to that the people who were closest to Jesus, the people who talked about it and wrote about it were so excruciatingly honest about their account. It makes their accounts even more believable. Nobody wrote themselves into this story as the hero of the story. They all wrote themselves into the story as doubters. You want to know why? Because they were doubters. Nobody believed that Jesus was going to do something different than all people that are die, have died do. Now, everybody believed Jesus is going to do what other dead people do. He's going to stay dead. Nobody, nobody expected to look into the tomb on Sunday morning and see nobody. I mean, no one was standing there at sunrise, counting from ten backwards, you know? Ten, nine, eight, cue the sun, seven, say, here comes the stone. Nobody was doing that. Because nobody believed that Jesus was going to come back to life. What they believed, or at least what they assumed was, We've been fooled. Or else we have greatly misunderstood what Jesus was talking about because what their assumption was, Jesus lost. It appears that Rome won. It appears that the Jewish leaders won. The problem with Jesus wasn't what he taught necessarily. And the problem with Jesus, the problem people had with Jesus, wasn't necessarily what he did. It wasn't even the miracles. The problem people had with Jesus is who he claimed to be. He claimed to be the Son of God. And how can he be the Son of God if he's been put to death? Because no one can execute God's Son. Rome can't crucify the life, the, the, the truth, the way, the truth, and the life. I mean, if he's really the Messiah that we have been waiting for for generations... He's not going to be put on a cross and killed. There's one other person who was an eyewitness to Jesus. There's a guy by the name of John. And John was a witness to both the crucifixion and the resurrection. And John wrote about both of those events. He wrote about the crucifixion and he wrote about the resurrection. And John didn't expect, by the way, either one of those events to happen. He didn't expect the crucifixion to take place. And once he did, he didn't really expect the resurrection to take place. What John expected was a king. John was looking for a king. So John tells us that after Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, back in John chapter 11, uh, in the little town of Bethany, just two miles from Jerusalem, that Jesus got a lot of attention because it was such a tremendous miracle. He raises a man from the dead. And Lazarus wasn't just dead for a couple minutes. And he wasn't just dead for a couple hours. I mean, they'd already had the funeral. He was dead. And Jesus brought him back to life. It was, it was such an undeniable act of God that people noticed that. And Jesus gained a lot of attention. And he gained a lot of traction because of that. And look what John writes after uh, the raising of Lazarus. 
Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary, Mary being the, the brother of Lazarus, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did put their faith in him. Many of the Jews put their faith in him. The problem was too many of the Jews put their faith in him. Because now Jesus' enemies back in Jerusalem, not that far away, they're realizing we're going to have to do something about Jesus. I mean, this Jesus guy has got to be stopped. So John writes in verse 48, this, this is the religious leaders speaking. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and then the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. we got to stop Jesus. we got to put an end to this guy from Nazareth. And they know that he's in Bethany, and he know, they know he's going to be coming to Jerusalem for the Passover feast. They understand he's going to be in, in, in Jerusalem. And maybe that's the best place to get him aside from the crowds. Maybe that's the best place to get him apart from his followers. And maybe we can take care of this problem once and for all. And Jesus makes his way into the city. And there are hundreds of people, maybe thousands of people, who are lining the streets as he enters Jerusalem claiming him to be Lord, Hosanna in the highest, calling him king. It's amazing how quickly this thing gets political. And he spends a week in Jerusalem, and he's teaching and preaching in the temple, and everybody's watching him. Everybody's watching Jesus. His followers were watching him because maybe this is the time when he's finally going to make his stand. I mean, this would seem to make sense that this would be the time. Here are all these people for the Passover feast. Now, we're, we're celebrating the Passover because we're celebrating God delivering his people from Egypt. This would be a great time for God to deliver his people from Rome. So his followers are watching him. His enemies are watching him as well. He's here. We know where he is. We need to put a stop to Jesus. Everybody's watching uh, Jesus. Toward the end of that week, Jesus celebrates the Passover with his followers, with the 12 apostles. And what he says in that upper room with those men actually increases their expectations that something big's coming. They can tell this is a different night. There's a lot of tension in the room. And Jesus is talking about some things they don't quite understand, but something is about to happen. And Jesus says, I'm introducing a brand new covenant to them. And the terms and the conditions of this covenant are, are pretty simple. Here it is. It, it's a new command. A new command I give you. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this all men will know that you're my disciples, if you love one another. And this wasn't a love as you want to be loved kind of command. This wasn't even, you know, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. This is a whole other thing. Jesus is saying, gentlemen, I want you to love the world the way I love you. And the next day, Jesus was going to give an example of that love, a demonstration that, that we're still talking about 2,000 years later. But they leave that upper room, and we know this story very well. They leave the room, they, they go to the garden, and Jesus is separated from his followers. He goes deep into the garden to pray. We know that Judas has already left to betray Jesus. And Judas and a mob shows up. And Jesus is arrested. He's taken to the high priest. 
And he ends up finally before a guy named Pilate, uh, a Roman official. And Pilate doesn't exactly know what to do with him. Pilate doesn't really want to do anything with him. He questions Jesus, and he comes to the conclusion, I don't see why this guy was arrested, let alone wanting to be sentenced to death. But Pilate's a politician, and he wants to keep the crowd happy. So he decides, I'll just punish this man. I'll have him flogged. I'll have him beaten. And he does, and Jesus is brought back before the crowd, and he's bloodied, and he's bowed. And Pilate thinks, well, surely this is enough. It's not enough. The crowd is demanding, crucify this guy. And in fact, they tell Pilate, he claims he's the Messiah. In fact, Pilate, he claims he's the king. And Pilate, if you're a friend of Caesar, like we are, you can't let this man live. And then John, who's there for this, wrote in chapter 19, verse 16, finally Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. Now, John was a young man when he witnessed all of this. Understand, he is a much older man when he's writing this down. And John writes in verse 18, Here they crucified him, and with him two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. Here they crucified him. No details given because no details are necessary. Everyone who read that sentence would have known exactly what happened that day on, on uh, Calvary. And then John, who was there for the crucifixion, records some of the words that Jesus spoke from the cross. He asked John to take care of his mother. He uh, lets him know that he's thirsty. Then finally, John said, Jesus spoke these words finished. And he hung his head and, and he died. And then John does this really unusual thing. In, in the narrative, as John's telling this story, he makes a statement that seems really out of place. In fact, we read over it and it's easy to skip over it because it doesn't seem like it's very significant. And it doesn't seem like it's really all that important. But what John says what, in, in this sentence that seems out of place is so significant. And is so important. And again, he's an older man who's recounting these events. And he pauses in the middle of his narrative. And he says something that I believe was intended for us just as much as it was for them. Here's what he writes. Verse 35. The man. He's talking about himself again. The man who saw it. In other words, I saw it. I didn't just hear it. And I didn't just read about it. I saw it. The man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. I am a witness. I am giving my testimony. I swear to you that what I am writing is the truth. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies so that... I'm telling you these things so that, and it's almost as if John reaches into the future and grabs us by the shoulders... And looks us in the eye. He says, I'm telling you this so that, just like me, who's an eyewitness, so that you also may believe. So that you also may believe. And at this point in the narrative, when John says that, I'd be thinking, okay, yeah, 
I believe it so far. So far, it's a pretty easy story to believe. Jesus is this rabbi who's gone off the rails, this one to be Messiah. So far, he's been arrested and he's been crucified on a cross by Rome. Got it. Happens all the time. Yeah, I believe. And John would say, no, 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 not that part. I'm talking about what's coming next. Because the part that's coming next is what's going to be really hard for you to wrap your mind around. But I promise you, I swear to you, the story that I'm telling happened. My testimony is true. I was there. Verse 38. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, because he feared the Jews. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Nicodemus brings 75 pounds of things to embalm the body of Jesus. Why? Because those men expected Jesus to do what all dead men do. They stay dead. Verse 40. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with spices and strips of linen. This was in accordance with the Jewish burial customs. This was John's way of remembering, oh yeah, people reading this, they're not all going to understand our customs, so I want everybody to understand what's going on. Verse 41. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. Because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Again, this is John's way of telling us they were in a hurry. And they were in a hurry to bury Jesus because the sun was about to go down. And as soon as the sun went down, the Sabbath was going to begin. And the work that they were doing would be unlawful if they were doing it during the Sabbath. So they very quickly prepare the body of Jesus. They wrap it in spices and cloth. Have a stone rolled in front of the tomb. And they leave. And the disciples are gone. They've disappeared somewhere into the city. Now, we don't know what John did that night. We don't know what the rest of the disciples did that night. We don't know where they went. I would think they probably assumed that this grand adventure certainly didn't end the way that we all expected it to end. But again, I don't know where they went. We don't know what they talked about. We don't know where they were on Saturday. But John tells us that early Sunday morning, he and Peter were still in town. And early Sunday morning, Mary Magdalene, who was a longtime follower of Jesus, who was a woman that Jesus delivered from demonic possession, Mary Magdalene came to the door, and she's excited. In fact, Mary is in a panic. She is sobbing. And they can't really understand what she's trying to tell them. And finally... She gets it out. She says to Peter and John, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb. And we don't know where they've put him. We went to the tomb to make sure that the body was properly prepared for burial and the stone was rolled aside. And, and Mary assumed, just like everyone assumed, not a miracle, not a resurrection. Her assumption was somebody stole the body of Jesus. 
Again, nobody writes themselves into this story as heroes. None of them believed that Jesus was going to come back from the dead. Someone has taken away the Lord, and we don't know where they, whoever they might be, we don't know where they put them. And then John writes this. So Peter and the other disciple, again, he's talking about himself, started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Kind of an interesting detail. John wanted us to know that he's faster than Peter. <laughs> then he says in verse 5, He, again, John, I, I bent over and looked in at strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. John wants us to know that he's faster than Peter, but he's honest enough to know, I'm not as bold as Peter. I didn't go into the tomb. I wonder why he didn't. Maybe because it was a tomb. <laughs> it was dark. Maybe something's going on. So John doesn't enter the tomb. Verse 6, Then Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived and went into the tomb. Peter doesn't hesitate. Why doesn't Peter hesitate? Well, he's Peter, right? He never hesitates. He's quick to speak, he's quick to act, and he's quick to walk right into this tomb. And John says, here's what we saw inside the tomb. And what we saw inside the tomb was not what we expected to see inside the tomb. Because when someone steals a body... They take everything with it. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth had been folded up by itself, separate from the linen. This wasn't a mess. This wasn't a rush job. Thieves would not have taken the time to fold everything back up and put it neatly aside. And John finally musters the courage to step inside as well. Finally, the other disciple, that's me, that's John. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. And then John tells us what changed his life. John tells us what would reframe the rest of his life. John tells us the, the formula that you read about all through the rest of the New Testament, the, the formula that John wants to leave his readers with because it takes every one of us to the very core of our Christian faith. John says, speaking of himself, he saw, saw, and he puts two and two together. He saw, and he believed. And John realizes, Jesus wins. In that moment, I think John realized, everything Jesus taught is true. Everything Jesus did, he did for the purpose of a much grander plan than I ever could have imagined. And then he writes parenthetically, they still do not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Again, John is being so transparent here. He said, you know, I didn't have it all figured out. I didn't start connecting the dots with that Old Testament prophecy. I still had a lot of questions, but I was sure of this. Jesus wins because I saw an empty tomb, and I believed. Now, those followers of Jesus would see Jesus after the resurrection. They would have conversations with Jesus after the resurrection. I want to share one of those conversations in particular with you as we close. 
Again, when Jesus was crucified, they all thought it was over. You know, again, Peter and John stay in town. The other disciples, disciples, we're not exactly sure where they went, uh, but we do know that it was a dangerous time to be identified as a follower of Jesus. The leader had just been crucified. So they're on edge. They're meeting behind locked doors when they meet. And John gives us a detail of a conversation that Jesus has with a guy by the name of Thomas, one of his apostles. It's in chapter 20. We'll pick it up in verse 24. Now Thomas called Didymus, the twin, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. Hey, Thomas, I don't know where you were, but you should have been here. You should have been with us. We have seen Jesus. Jesus is alive. But he, Thomas, said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. Guys, I love you, but your word is not enough. Peter, I love you, but I think you're seeing things. John, I love you, but you're a little bit delusional. Unless I see for myself, I will not believe. A week later, a week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. The doors are locked. Jesus shows up in this locked room. Peace be with you. Why did he say, peace be with you? Because I'm sure they were scared to death, right? Whoa. I'm sure they needed a little bit of peace. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Thomas, it's me. Come on. You know me. It's me. I'm here. I am alive. And then Jesus tells him, stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. You know, we give Thomas such a hard time, don't we? Thomas picks up this very unfair nickname, Doubting Thomas. Hey, they all doubted. <laughs> he was not the only one. He was the last one of the group to see Jesus, but none of them believed that Jesus was going to rise from the dead. And then Jesus does this amazing thing. He thinks about you. And he thinks about me. He's talking to Thomas, but I'm convinced he's thinking about us as well. Verse 29, then Jesus told him, because you've seen me, you've believed. Blessed are those who have not seen me and yet believe. Blessed are those who have not seen me. Thomas, you saw me, so you believe. Yeah, I'm thinking about those people who haven't seen me. I'm thinking about those people who won't see me. Blessed are they who don't see me and believe. Blessed are those future generations. Matthew, blessed are the people that are going to read what you write and believe in me. Peter, blessed are those people who are going to read your account and believe in me. John, 
Blessed are those people who are going to read your story and believe in me. Blessed are those people who are far off. Blessed are those people who are in Tampa, Florida, 2,000 years from now, who have not seen me, but they believe that I came back from the dead. And they believe that I was exactly, am exactly, who I said I was. And then John closes this narrative, this, this story, with an invitation, I think, for all of us. And his closing invitation, the same invitation that you really find all through Scripture. Verse 30, Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written. What I have written, I have written for a reason. Not just so you would know what happened. Not just so you would be armed with all the facts. These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Here's why I wrote my story. Here's why I told you the details. So that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. That's his invitation. And then he says, and that by believing, you will have faith, life in his name. John desperately wants us to believe his testimony. Guys, I was there. I swear to you, what I am telling you, what I am writing is true. Jesus wins. Jesus wins. I want you to believe my story so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing, you might have life in his name. The resurrection proves who Jesus was. The resurrection proves that what Jesus came to offer, he's offered it to us. We get the gift. Jesus came for us. John wants the resurrection to be as personal to us as it was to him. So we wrote those things that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. That by believing in him, you may have life in his name. That's John's invitation. Believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. That's our invitation as well this morning, to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. The tomb is empty. Jesus wins. Let's go ahead and stand, and we'll sing.